everyone, what is going on? This is Wilson Pang, and you're listening to Beyond the Growth. In this episode of Beyond the Growth, uh, Alex, our VP of Marketing at Inspire Beats, interviews Aaron Ross, who is the author of Predictable Revenue, uh, what people coin as the Sales Bible. And in this interview, he pretty much dives a little bit into uh, his book first, his upcoming book with Jason Lemkin. And then he goes into a little bit of sales strategies. But what's the best part of this interview is the part where he goes into entrepreneurship and how he lives paycheck by paycheck. When you're running a rapidly growing company and you're looking to raise money and you need to impress your investors, your your team, you're looking to build out your team, it's very, very hard to kind of sustain um, a big money kind of living, right? This is not one of those bootstrap business where lifestyle entrepreneurs live the life they want and have a stable income. Uh, it's where you invest all your money back into marketing, sales, and engineering, and building out the team. And you're pretty much, as a founder or as an executive, you're living paycheck by paycheck. This was a situation that Aaron Ross was in, and he goes into details about entrepreneur problems, the people that the struggles the entrepreneurs go through on a day-to-day basis, and how everyone, including Elon Musk and probably even the founder of Facebook, runs into problems every single day. It's just different problems that we don't typically see as an outsider. So Aaron Ross does talk a lot about personal stuff as well as kind of mindset that you need to have while you're um, you're running a, a rapid-growing company. It's a very, very great interview. It dives in-depth into his stories and... Um, it's going to be a great one. So I'll let Alex take it from here. If you want to um, follow me on Twitter, uh, I'm at WilsonPang8. Uh, well, enjoy the interview. Well, so today we're talking to Aaron Ross. He's the author of From Impossible to Inevitable. Aaron's married with 12 children, mostly through adoption. I'm going to talk about that in a second. He loves motorcycles and keeps a 25-hour work week. Um, he's also keynote speaker and best-selling author of Predictable Revenue, which everyone in Silicon Valley has read. He calls it the sales bible of Silicon Valley. Um, so his whole process is based on outbound prospecting uh, system, one that's created more than $1 billion across Salesforce.com and other companies. He's co-founder and CRO of Carb.io, which is a pipeline automation software company, and is also the co-founder of PredictableUniversity.com. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Hey, Alex. Good to meet you and everybody. It's always good to hear a bio like this because, um, I don't know, I I like hearing my own uh, things read back to me. So (laughs) how does it feel to have a bio like that? Uh, It's just sort of funny hearing, you know, stuff about my, you know, what a bio is because, Bios are always frustrating to do. You're trying to keep it like short, um, relevant. I don't know. I always think the kids, you know, people think the kids thing is funny. I think it's funny. Um, and I love motorcycles. I don't know. But add a little like personal flair in and not keep it too straight laced. Yeah. Why, I think, why do you um, have so many kids? Uh, actually, I'm not sure. Actually, I can't. <laughs> it's just worked out that way. And knowing that we're going from, I got married about four and a half years ago. Now, it's coming up on five years in May, so we're, we're going from. She had two kids when I met her, but we're going from you know, me basically zero to twelve kids in less than five years. So it's like hyperscaling a family That's growth. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Now, it's a lot of work, but so it's there's a lot of rewards too. Just like starting or running a business. Cool. Yeah. So in this interview, we're going to go through um, a little bit of the predictable revenue stuff, the old school um, stuff that you wrote in your first book. But then we're also going to cover a lot of this new book. Uh, from Impossible to Inevitable, which yeah. I wrote with Jason Lemkin, um, who 
I'm a big fan of of, of Saster Conference and also the blog. Um, yep. And actually, I heard about you a while ago. Um, back in my old company, the old director of sales loved predictable revenue. Like that was what <laughs> my sales system off of. Good. Yeah. I like you already. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's hard. It only came out about a little more than four years ago. Um, and actually, the new book is sort of based on all the lessons learned since then. But uh, it's yeah, I'm, I'm excited. It's 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 going to be here in just a couple of weeks. Actually, live. The new book, because it was a pain in the ass to do, much harder than the prior one. <laughs> so what are some of the, um, the key takeaways, right? Like why, why would someone get this book versus something like Predictable Revenue, right? Or actually, uh, I'd love to get your opinion. Which one should they read first if, if they have the choice? Yeah, for sure they should read From Impossible to Inevitable first. And if you haven't read Predictable Revenue, mm-hmm. really it's a sales book. Um, for anyone in sales, especially executives, CEOs, VPs of sales, but even salespeople, on how do you design a sales organization that can scale? Uh, you know, and plus, if you want to create predictable revenue, why you need predictable lead generation? And there's a lot of details about how to do outbound prospecting uh, and do it consistently and predictably as a way to basically control how fast your company grows. So it's really a sales book. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, Inc, it wasn't me, but Inc.com and people, people call it the sales Bible of Silicon Valley. It's a new book from possible to inevitable is really a growth book. And, you know, the last few years, you know, in, I do a lot of consulting with companies, I do offer, you know, a lot of people reject for advice and I've really learned, okay, for the companies that do really well, um, you know, they follow these ideas or they, you know, there's some that take off and there's some that struggle, you know, and what are the differences? And so Jason and I really put together these like seven, uh, um, it's really seven parts of this new book, seven ideas. There's seven, pain, there's one painful truth per idea. Okay. And we can go through some of these, but I'll, I will say that the ideas don't, they're not, they work for businesses, you know, and a lot of the ideas are coming from companies like salesforce.com, which now is $8 billion, but even companies like Zenefits, which went from one to a hundred million dollars in like two years or, uh, Avenue, which went from you know like a thousand dollars to several million dollars in revenue in a year, like hyper growth companies, but they work too for people. Like I actually was writing, you know, we were doing the book, and I realized, wow, these same things are are basically how I personally grew my income like eleven times over the last four years. Uh, and there's some details around that and why I even did that because uh, I did it because I had to, not because I wanted to. Right. Because I mean, you know, twelve too, kids. Yeah, 12 you got kids. twelve kids. You don't have a choice. Yeah. Ah. That's interesting. So, how did you um, how did you scale the income? Did you was it uh, SDRs building the same process like predictable revenue with outbound sales? Or no, it's funny. You know, I don't do any prospecting for myself. Mm-hmm. I personally am a content guy, like books and writing, and we will do prospecting. We do a little bit now that we have a software company, the Carb.io. But you know, the advice I tell people is again, if you have a business, if you've nailed your niche, which we'll get into here shortly, because. Um, you're not, you can't really grow until you nail your niche, but if you're, if you're ready to grow, you, know, a lot, you should start with either inbound or content marketing primarily or primarily outbound, not because one is better than the other, but just you know, sort of focus and resources. And you know, basically start with if you have an inclination for one or the other, start based on your desire, not because you, know, you think you should or not. But for me, like I, I'm a content guy, so all my business really has grown through inbound leads, word of mouth, um, I'll say zero through prospecting so far. That'll change in the future. But a lot of it is actually from publishing the book 
just sort of the, here's the short, but publishing the book, um, you know, probably in nailing my niche and the stories in the book about how I did that. Cause that's a bit longer story. Okay. And then, uh, in growing my deal sizes, like doubling my deal size, doubling my deal size, which is you know, nailing, nailing your niche is part one of the new book, doubling your deal size is part four. Right. So again, the stuff in the book, there's seven parts. And to this point I'd done like five of them and I'm to grow 10 times again, uh, there's another the next couple. There's a couple more I'm still working on. Cool. So you yeah. mentioned nailing your niche a couple times. Let's jump into that because that's the first yeah. ingredient of hyper growth. You've got seven in the book, like you mentioned. Yeah. Um, nailing your niche. I know a lot of B2B companies, um, they they do a lot of things, right? They're not niche down. So what does it really mean to you uh, to nail your niche? Yeah. Well, there's a, this comes from, and there's a painful truth with this one. And the painful truth is you're not ready to grow until you nail a niche because there's companies that would come to me or come to us and say, Hey, we want, you know, we're ready to grow. We want more appointments. Can you help us, you know, uh, build our outbound program? And, you know, I've learned that usually by looking at them, it's like, no, you haven't nailed your niche. Like you don't really know who you're selling to, to, you don't really know who needs your product rather than where you're nice to have, you know, the pains they experience and why they buy. And sometimes, you know, an early stage company, and now this problem isn't just with early stage companies because it can happen with um, SAP, which is a $90 billion company, but in different ways where it's a salesperson at SAP or Oracle has like 20 products they can sell. And they might only have, uh, so it's sort of the question of like, I have 20 products I can sell to these different or different target markets. Like, what do I sell? If, you, if I try to sell all 20, I end up selling too much and scattering my energy. In a, so it's the same idea as in a startup or, or a growth company, which is who's the who's that um, type of customer where you know that this type of customer needs has a need for what we do. Where can I find them? What do they care about? How can I communicate with them? And to do that, it's and I think the main challenge of companies is they don't really they're not honest with themselves about differentiating where they're a need to have versus where they're a nice to have, right? Because especially in Silicon Valley where there's all kinds of cool stuff that gets built, the people don't buy cool. Or at least early adopters sometimes will because they're like, hey, this is cool and I can, I can see how I'd use it. And that only gets you started because the, most of the market are not early adopters. They're mainstream buyers. But to, go, to sell to mainstream buyers where they don't want to do a free trial usually. Like they don't, they just want like, Get me on the phone. Just show me how it works. Like show me, sort of show me the money, and then I'll decide. And for those, um, it's you have to be really concrete. In they, if they don't need you, right? Cool is hey, that was cool, and they forget about you later. What do you think about um, about Salesforce now? Because when you were there, it seemed like they were just doing the CRM, just the one product. But now they're uh, expanding out. Um, how does how does that nailing a niche work, or how does that evolve? Yeah, well, yeah. When I was there, there was Salesforce automation, um, customer yeah, support, and marketing. And, you know, well, but really, marketing point, was, was you know was called not, basically nothing. And now they've got a huge product portfolio from development, and they've acquired a lot of companies. So Salesforce, though, you know, is a whole other beast because it's like Google at this point, where they've got the brand, everyone knows them, everyone goes to talk to them. It was like IBM a ways back. 
So they can afford to be a lot more complicated in their product portfolio because people are coming to them and are willing to give them a bunch of time to talk to them and find out their problems and offer some sort of solution. When you're an earlier stage company, the trick is, and a lot of blogs will say, well, you got to ask the prospect about their pains and then like customize the solution. But you got to get it. You got to get some of their time to be able to even do that. How do you get the appointment in the first place if they don't know you? So that's the trick. And when you're, uh, so nailing a niche, it's not about thinking small. It's about being focused, focusing in on those kinds of customers again need you. Okay, so nice to have. They don't. They don't buy, people don't buy at least in B two B. Consumers are different, um, but companies don't buy nice to haves. Mm-hmm. You know, where and every company is a need to have someplace. So where you need to have, where you nice to have. Focus on. I know everybody could use what you got, but if you go after everybody who could use it, you're going to waste all your time and energy. So where's the best place to focus? Who needs you? What are their problems? What do they care about? How can you communicate with them and get them interested? And earn the right for that kind of longer conversation or a, you know, like a solution-based conversation. Right. Can you dive into an example, like uh, something in the B2B space that you've seen? Maybe they were not nailing their niche and then they got it and then they just started exploding? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot like, I mean, pretty much every company like Slack. Yeah. Right? Slack turned along for a few years before they did. In any company that pivots, there's some aspect of it. There's a lot of companies that are nice to have. If you're in a really crowded space, I mean, you guys have been through some some changes and pivots, yeah, right? Yeah, started as uh, we weren't even lead generation at all. We were a Mandarin uh, translating uh, app. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then we did yeah lead generation assess, and now we're fully managed lead generation. And, yeah, and outbound um, different yeah, versions. Really yeah, cool. so I, I, you know, one of there's two stories in the book I share. One is about myself. Um, and the quick version is after salesforce.com, I wanted to start a company. I didn't want to know exactly what type and I ended up doing sales consulting for a while. Uh, but he's like, I sales consulting. I don't really want to do that. And I pursued, you know, I wrote a book and pursued something called CEO flow, which is how to turn your employees into mini CEOs, like management design and culture, organizational design. And I, I did a website, a separate thing, website and videos around an, an idea called unique genius, unique genius.com. So for individuals, how do you create money and fulfillment or combine the two? Uh, so I did, you know, those, um, you know, neither one really it came down to it. And when I got married, I was like, I need to make a lot more money because mm-hmm. as a single guy with low expenses, I could make between 50 to hundred grand a year, sort of part time, just, and experimenting these other things, you know, instead of family couldn't do that. So I picked the thing that was the easiest to make money with predictable revenue where it was because the most concrete and you know, people need it. Uh, I had a, you know, experience of reputation in it and so on. I just focused and that, you know, led to a breakthrough from going from, you know, mid five figures to almost a million dollars the last couple of years in income over the last in between in you know, like four years. Consulting around predictable revenue. Mostly consult. I mean, it's a combination of royalties, which is a small part, uh, some referrals fee, small part, mostly, mostly consulting. So projects, you know, five or six figure projects with companies who want to build an internal team of prospectors. So that's your niche, right? You want companies that want to build an internal team, not somebody that's going to be in B2C or somebody that's going to be uh, at something else that's not internal. Yeah. So that niche around when I finally decided on to publish the book, it was, okay, I'm going to do outbound prospecting and sales. Like that's going to be my niche, not 
organizational design, not any genius, not, um, they still, they affect everything I do. I sort I, I brought some of those ideas back into, but my brand is, you know, outbound prospecting, you know, sales growth. That was it. So, so put everything else on hold or on the shelf and just focused on that. And that really enabled me to stand out in the market, publish the book and it started to, uh, to grow. What were some of the, so, and then, what were some of the thoughts that were going through your head when, when that was happening? So you just got married, right? You're making this not even a low salary, decent salary for, you know, most Americans. Yeah. Not, I, not too good. Sort of, yeah. Um, so you're making yeah, this salary. what I needed. What, um, what sort of thoughts or what sort of things did you have to overcome uh, to take that leap and niche down uh, and, and double down on fixed revenue? Yeah. Well, that's why I've seen that um, it's the same fears that come up again and again for, for individuals and companies, which is, um, I'm going to limit myself. You know, it's not really sexy. It's not cool. Um, you know, I don't want to do just this. Right. And see, this is companies. It's the fear of missing out combined with, you know, do I really want to do this? I want to do something different. I've done this for a long time. I want to do something new. So those I seen it time and time again. So companies, what they, companies tend to, it's this fear of missing out, which is, well, instead of doing just, you know, LA based companies, why can't we just do anyone in the United States? Or if it's instead of just financial services companies, you know, why not financial services and healthcare and construction and manufacturing? If it's, why not, if it's just mid-market companies, why not enterprise and small business, right? And at some point in your, in your life cycle, those can make sense to expand. But if you're not growing the way you want to, as fast as you want, it always, like the place, 80% of the time is because you haven't nailed your niche yet. And again, big companies as well. You know, it's something you have to reevaluate every time you launch a new product, launch a new kind of marketing or lead generation, enter a new territory. It, it's not something that's done and you've checked it off. It's something you need to redo actually regularly through the life cycle of you as your career or your company. So how do you personally get through the fear of missing out? Well, for me, again, it's in the book, I use forcing functions where, well, there's two things. You know, for, for years, I just tend to, you know, I, I notice that fear and I tend to ignore it or focus on what I do and appreciate what I do for myself. And, you know, just everybody's different. Uh, you can't do everything. So it's impossible to focus on everything you could do. You just, you got to do fewer things better. And I do a lot with my life. I mean, we do, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, you've got uh, so Card.io, you've got Predictable University. Now you're like hyping a new book. You're at Saster interviewing. I saw you doing Xenophys. Yeah. yeah, so how do you, I guess, how do you deal with that? Well, it's like having kids, you know, I'm, I'm not, I can't travel, really, unless it's with a huge pack of people. Um, I rarely get one-on-one. I, once, uh, once a week, I have a date with my wife. So, it's, and between like kids and stuff, it's, it's rarer than that that we actually get to, uh, you know, have sex. Um, but there's, we don't, so we don't try, we can't travel for fun. Really. There's, I don't have any free time, very little. I give up a lot for the life I've got. Like I'm always tired, Mm -hmm. but the benefits I get in terms of, I make a lot more money, which is really important with the family. I'm not even a money driven guy. Really. I've never been very money motivated. I'm more, I'm wanting to make a difference, but it's like learning how to make a difference and make money. Um, I have a great business. I'm famous in my niche. You know, Jason and I call ourselves internet famous. And I'm really excited about the new book. Um, you know, I have, I'm emotionally rich. I mean, I make a lot of money. I spend it all on the family, investing in the family. 
because adoptions are most of our kids are from adoption and they're expensive and um and we, have, we need a big house and we have you know we have help and but uh, like to say you know building a family's been a very uh, it's like emotional wealth like i i am smothered in love we have a lot of fun yeah, you know, it's like it's any family. Sometimes people argue and so on, but it's incredible being having a big family. So again, fear of missing out. I give up a lot to get a lot. Like trying to have it all. Like there's the old fable around the dog with a bone in his mouth, and it wants it sees itself a, a reflection in the water. I want that bone too. Drops its bone, and it has nothing. So if you know, again, that fear of you're always chasing other people's. You know, like on social media, everyone's always doing something cool, whether it's real or not. You just, it's like good for inspiration and ideas, but you start to be stuck in that idea of like, you're not good enough and every, you're jealous and you're so focused on everyone else. You forget to like take care of yourself. Then it's a rat hole. Right. So that's what started. That was one, actually, there's one other important thing is I, um, use forcing functions to motivate myself to do what I have to do, but maybe I don't want to do by a simple forcing function is in this example, um, you know, cause it's easy, especially these days to, you can sit on the couch. I was never like a big Netflix person, but if you, a lot of people probably sit on their couch and watch hours of Netflix or TV every night. And it's like, Hmm, okay. You're not making the money you want. You're not achieving your goals. Like, how much are you consuming versus how much are you creating? But for me, cause I am, uh, you know, I'm probably not that different from a lot of people. I'm not a mutant like Elon Musk. Right, you or call Richard out Branson. you only work like 25 hours a week, right? That's a goal. Yeah, I'm, yeah, and it's, there's a, it's a creative constraint mm-hmm. to force myself to do things that are important, not just busy. And, but what works the best thing for me is I'll, sorry, the story is like, if you're, you want to get into better shape, uh, is it better to A, you spend money in a gym, or B, do you join, sign up for a marathon or some you know, race, and then tell all your friends you're doing it, right? Then you can't hide. So that's what I do. I'll announce, okay, I'm writing a book or I'm doing a blog post or I'm going to do an event or I'm going to do X, Y, Z you know, on my blog or some public place and then I have to do it. Even if, I'm, I, even if I don't have the energy, I have doubts or it's like still, I have to do it. So getting married with like, and having a bigger family and bills is like I, have to find, I had to find ways. The, it motivated me to figure out how to make more money rather than figuring out how to stay smaller with my finances or family. Who are you, um, who are you reading that was uh, inspiring you to do that? Because that sounds really similar to like Tim Ferriss, some stuff he teaches, or maybe even like Ramit Sethi, or like some of these other info product guys. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I know those guys. Actually, I like Ram, Ramit's, uh, I think his blog's funny. He's one of the few I follow. Jason, has, actually, if you don't follow Jason Lumpkin, his is, is great. If you're in SaaS, you have to follow it. Yeah, I showed it to um, one of my uh, one of my friends who's running a fifty person agency, uh, development agency. Never heard of Jason Lemkin, and he went from reading one article to like digging in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you know, and the book is going to be, you know, I, I'm I really the book is going to be a breakthrough for a lot of people. I've early readers are saying they've they someone like quit his job because of it, or they're changing their market. I don't know. It's early. It's good early feedback. But uh, I don't really follow many people, so I, I don't know if I can say that there's. I, mean, I think a lot of what I've done is, is you know, I like I listen to some people, but a lot of it's been more listening to myself and what feels right. Mm-hmm. And I don't know this sounds a bit cheesy to live in the moment, but practicing to like a lot. I I can't tell you how many times over the past few years, you know, it's been paycheck to paycheck where. 
I'll agree to do an adoption or agree to do some sort of investment in, um, say, adoption. And I may not even have the money or get a a bigger house. Like we moved a year ago into a house that is $17,000 a month. And at the time, like, uh, four years ago, we were in a place that was $2,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like, these leaps, it's like, how the, I don't know how the hell I'm going to do this, but if I, you know, put myself in a place where my bridges are burned, I'll figure it out. And it's not always easy because to do that, not only do I create, make more money, but I've ha- I had to do things like use up my savings sometimes or borrow money from someone and then pay it back or, like, juggle, but it's been worth it. And like an entrepreneur, and a lot of entrepreneurs, especially if you bootstrap, you'll know that sometimes, maybe your whole life, you'd be like, I don't want any debt, I can't do debt, but it's like, hmm, you can either get a credit line or the credit card to pay for like payroll or fire people or do some other sort of like, what's what's the, the lesser evil? All right, I'll take more debt. And so, again, putting yourself in this place where things have to happen, it forces you to get over your fears. And then at some point you realize, wow, you know, those fears, they were just fears. It's not as bad as I thought it would be to have debt or to have 12 kids or to, um, you know, whatever, the, whatever, like, you make your list around, I, you know, the worst things that can happen. And it never happens. It's just the fears that hold you back from taking a bigger, a bigger leap, either in your personal life or in business. Yeah, the debt thing is is really big. Um, I went forty grand into debt starting a startup in February, and it's just finally getting paid back like eight months later. Um, but yeah, for a while there, when you're seeing your credit line get closer and closer, uh, it's like being uh, maxed out. Like that's scary. Uh, that was yeah. me in Vegas a couple weeks ago. I was sitting there, about to be thrown out of a hotel for not having it. Yeah, no, that's fine. Like you know, my credit, my credit's pretty. I've always had stellar credit my whole life, and now it's. Not that it's it's I don't know it's probably medium it's probably pretty bad not bad but it's like uh it's definitely not stellar because I've got some credit card debt and not paying it off because it's like I can either try to pay it off or not take it on or do this you know adoption or this family investment or um I mean there's a lot of things in our life our life our family life we do for our family whether it's the house or whether it's help or whether it's more kids or this that the other it's just been it's more important to do the things that need to get done and i'll deal with the debt or credit stuff other later like it's not that big a deal in the scheme of things that's something a lot of founders don't talk about but it's it's common you know that's what i hear a lot like in your book you're talking about nailing your niche right you're talking about overnight successes in a fairy tale like growth (laughs) exposing your weaknesses as you scale up but no one's talking about you know sometimes you got to put forty thousand dollars on a credit card and like hire two people when you don't know whether you can pay them off. Yeah, you know, and yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I touched on it in the in at least at the very last at the end. I don't know if you got there, but how I've, I eventually I've been living paycheck usually paycheck to paycheck for like the last five years, growing my businesses fast, growing my family fast. Uh, so we're living on edge that way drives my parents, especially my dad, crazy. Um, cause it's a very, it may seem like a precarious state, but when you're going for hyper growth, you know, the thing is like, if you're pushing the pedal to the metal, by definition, you're, you're driving on the edge. So if you want to live, if you want your business or life to be in the safe zone, you have to give up some of that growth. It's this choice around if you want to, um, you know, not every company needs to be a hyper growth company, but if you do, you probably you're going to raise money and, and spend it. You're supposed to spend it, not save it. If you want a less risky, more comfortable, some might say complacent 
business or maybe life, then that's fine. You don't, don't raise money because raising money is another kind of forcing function. Then you have to figure out how to grow. Mm-hmm. It's like go big or go home. So, you know, for a long time I was in the bit less risky the last few years, it's the go big or go home. It's different. I don't know if it's bad or worse, it's, but it's, uh, it's been a great, I mean, I've really, it's eye opening so far and there's, I think I'm just getting started. Well, um, similar to that point, uh, number three on your seven point type or growth thing was growth exposes your weaknesses and causes more problems than it solves. Yeah. What, so what were some of the problems you were running into when you were scaling up, uh, your income? Yeah. Uh, and if, you know, I just changed that before publication to speeding up growth creates more problems than it solves. Oh, I copied and pasted right. that directly from your website. Yeah, it's close. It's close enough. But it's a bit twist because if you want to be more direct, that people think growing, grow. If we just grow, if I make more money, mm-hmm. it'll solve my problems. If I just do X, if I get to a million dollar business, if I get you know a million Instagram followers, uh, and it actually it usually creates more problems than it solves. It's just that they're better to problems because you know if you're growing your business and if in hyper growth, the faster your business grows, the more things will break. You know, and you have to be okay with, wow, to grow that much faster, we're going to have to hire more people or build more product or have more customers that don't fit. Like customer service will go down or have more people who don't work out. Um, you know, it's just, it creates more problems. So for me personally, um, there's more things to juggle, more clients, more projects, more books. More, that's one example. Just, you know, it's while, trying, while keeping the 25 to 30 hour work week, which does, I don't always keep it because like last week I traveled three to three cities doing three different keynotes. So, you know, a good, maybe a third of my income is from public speaking where now I'll get paid $15,000 to go do a two hour talk someplace. Mm-hmm. But I get it. I got to get on a plane to go do it. So I'm gone for the family for a night or two, which is hard on me and them. Um, so I don't know. I, they're all good problems. I've got I've got problems. Every any entrepreneur you think is famous, Elon Musk. Man, the guy has got to be has horrible problems. Well, he got divorced. You know, yeah. Well, there's that. Plus, when you have a public company and you have to meet earnings targets, you have cash flow issues, and you've got three. I mean, the pro, he has more problems, and they're way, way, way bigger. So yeah, he doesn't have to personally worry about money, but personal life, like stress wise, he's probably just at least as stressed as he's ever been. I would assume. I don't know him, by the way, but any person you see in Instagram or whoever has looks at the perfect life, like they, they're just not showing their problems. Sometimes you have a perfect life for a while, but you know, then something always changes. Right. So what's the goal then? Like, why even go for hypergrowth? Why not? It's, I mean, it's, it's it fun and exciting that problems. way. Yeah, but they're better problems. Like a problem if you have, you know, $10 million, you still have problems with money. It's just better problems than if you have no money, you can't afford anything. Mm-hmm. It's like you have friends who are jealous. Like, what do you do with it? Fear of losing it. Um, I don't have $10 million, but I'm just like making some things up. But yeah, you, you still have problems. Mark Zuckerberg has huge problems. They're just different than other people's. Now you don't have, like, there's no one who doesn't have problems in life. Right. So whatever the dream is, and if you get married... You know, then the problem is, okay, after the first couple of years of, you know, there's sort of like that honeymoon period, whatever the, any kind of new relationship, there's a honeymoon period. And then you have the reality, like, do I actually like this person or not? If I don't get the freebie of the, of like the honeymoon chemicals, like what's this, what's this person like? All right. So the, the dream of either getting married or of having more 
girlfriends or boyfriends, you know, maybe it's a problem not to have a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife for some people. Some people might enjoy that, but then you get them and then it creates new problems at some point. So it's all just living. It's not, yeah, it's just living. I think the point is that if you're struggling, you're not doing anything wrong. That's like part of life. And remember, it's even worse now because you're surrounded by examples of people's success all over social media, all your friends, right? They don't want to, you know, you, you, you don't, how much of what you share on social media is like the shit you deal with every day. You know, you don't, because first you don't really want to share that. You're sort of huddled in the corner crying. The second, you know, like, eh, you know, people don't want to see me whine. I know there's lots of reasons. So that's why social media is probably like 90% positive. So what you see is, wow, everyone's crushing it while I'm struggling. Because what you're doing, your day is like stealing, especially if you're an entrepreneur, you're dealing 90 or maybe 100% of your day or 98% is dealing with problems. It's the nature of work of when you're, especially in a company, when you're as an entrepreneur or any place where you're pushing for some sort of coming to change or growth. So it's like, I'm, all my days dealing with problems. Everyone else is having this great time I'm in Bali or losing 20 pounds, like where they sold their company. Like what's wrong with me? It's nothing. Everyone's the same. You just don't see that window to them. So what's your advice? Um, I know this book's mainly focused on people that have 100,000 plus revenue. It looked like that was more of the niche you're going for. Like sustain. Yeah, basically they've got a product of some kind or like a solid idea. It's not how to come up with an idea. It's like you've got something. Yeah. How do you grow it much faster? Right. So what's your advice for someone? Like let's say they have you know, a sustainable business. Um, a lot of the agency founders I talk to, especially like digital agencies, that sort of thing, they get almost all yeah. their leads from referrals. They've got a bunch of full-time workers underneath them. Like how do, how do you grow that? How do you hyper-grow without hiring a bunch more full-time people? First, you, well, first you have to read that first. There's this first chapter called Nail a Niche. Like I actually talk about this, or Jason and I, we have some sections on this. Um, you can get it for free at fromimpossible.com. It's part of the sample. So... But I think the so one of the things I mentioned in that there's a, there's actually a bunch of ideas in that one chapter that I think will be eye opening. But one of the key ones is that what's made what makes an agency successful oftentimes is the or a lot of services businesses is the fact that you know you know your space and you'll you'll meet people in the space however it is referrals and you're like okay tell me about what you want to do like what's your problems and you they tell you your problems. And then you say, well, okay, I got it. All right, well, here's what we can do for you. I've got a solution I can present. All right, and whatever their problem is in that space, you can probably help them with something. And that is exactly the, that is the anti-growth mindset. That's the mindset to get off the ground. Right. Great. But to actually grow, you need to switch that mindset 180 degrees where it becomes, um, instead of, hey, what's your problem? And we can help you. Now it's, we solve this problem. Here's the one problem we solve. Do you have it? No? Great. Thanks. Goodbye. Yes? Okay. Let's talk more. And if you're doing lead research, you're only going after people with the problem anyway. Yeah. And it's really hard for people to make that shift because of the fear, you know, all the same reasons, like fear of missing out or like that's not what my business does. Uh, There's a lot of reasons why. Like that we haven't done it that way. But complacent, um, comfort's the enemy of growth. And so again, if you, by doing what you've been doing, Usually, for, especially for agencies, just doing more of what you've been doing isn't what will get you to the next level. You have to change your maybe your model or people or something else in some significant way, new product, new program, 
to enable yourself to grow faster if it's a services business. And by the way, if it's a, if it really is like a true services business, those things I don't like. I don't know how to scale a service. People do it, but I'm like I don't know how you, the hell you do that. Yeah, I used um, to it's do, one reason. Yeah, my background used to be all services, and then when I jumped into uh, Inspire Beats, it's more SaaS uh, style. So uh, I'm seeing how much better that is now. Because uh, I used to only know services. And, and yeah, with SaaS, there's like no real full-time employees if you don't want them. Like the companies, the customers are just paying you nonstop. Like it, it's so yeah. much easier. Yeah, easier once it's up and running. So it's, it's e- services is great because you can just like start today. Okay, now I'm doing services. And write an email. And that's your, your business. So easy to create you know, products and change them and adapt. You know, software or SaaS is a lot harder to get started. But once you get the ball rolling... It, that's a business you can scale much more easily. So there's pros and cons to each. Yeah. Um, okay. Depends last, on what you want to do. Last question, because we're running out of time. Um, how how would this predictable revenue system or or this uh, you know from impossible to inevitable system work for a B two C like a mobile app company? Um, or is it only B two B? Yeah. Well, okay. So the from impossible to inevitable book. Right. Sorry. Okay. Quick question. So with predictable revenue, if you read that. And so that a lot of that's about outbound prospecting yeah. and sales role specialization for any kind of company that does partnerships. That's basically like prospecting or business development. It's from business to business. So that's how any, uh, any B2C company that has channels or partnerships can use the idea of prospecting or outbound. But from possible to inevitable, the new book, the important thing is, and I mentioned, we mentioned in the back, which is if you, you know, go through these seven parts, you nail a niche, uh, create predictable pipeline and so on. And the book is really written for B2B companies and executives of them for managers and leaders. But if you read the book with it, um, I don't know, not underbelly, but if you really read it for yourself, it's the same principles for an individual, for your career. Or if you're a B2C company, if you sort of translate them appropriately, you know, maybe not a hundred percent, but like 85% or 90% of it is the same uh, you just got to read between the lines around you know, if I see a salesperson or a customer. Or, it's really the same principles. You just got to put a, more tra- a little more translation into it. But for a career, if you want to be successful, as a, if you're in some kind of career and you want to be successful as a person, you have to nail your niche as a person. If you tell people, well, on my resume, I've done sales, I've done product development, I, I can do international, I can do that. They're like, they're like oh, what do we do with you? Like, I don't know. What do you need? <laughs> yeah, no. What are you going to be the best at? What are you going to stand out at? And having some sort of specialty, at least as a starting point, a beachhead, you have to have, unless you start your own company. Awesome. Okay, any final thoughts? No, I mean, I, I really believe that the new From Impossible to Inevitable book is going to change people's lives. I'm, I'm really excited for people to read it and, and get a lot out of it. Um, you know, a, the last the last two sections. I'm not going to go into them, but I will say that there's two sections that are ones for executives and ones for employees. And if you're a lot of these, um, you know, say like maybe 20s, maybe teenagers, maybe 20s, early 30s people that is frustrated with your career because you don't feel recognized or appreciated. Chapter seven of the new book is something you have to read. It's called Define Your Destiny. The painful truth is that employees or you know people you let your frustration stop you rather than letting them motivate you i think it's actually part of the free sample on from impossible.com but it's like life lessons for your personal success not just uh you know because look as a business i wrote this there's a chapter 
every owner wants their employees to realize, wow, you know, this opportunity is much bigger here for you that you than you realize if you just take advantage of it. So if there's a chapter, you know, as if the owners is what they want you to know if you're an employee, like how do you succeed with your career? And I've had people come up and say after a talk or reading a chapter, like, wow, you know, you really nailed it for me. I have a much clearer sense of how to succeed personally with my career after reading this. So uh, it's just a lot. Uh, there's a, some things that a huge generation of people feel like they need to hear, even if they don't like it. Awesome. Yeah, Aaron, that's good. Thanks for being here. Uh, Alex. Go check out fromimpossible.com, sign up, and uh, yep. buy the book when it comes out. <laughs>